This podcast is produced by Audiofy. Welcome to Season 2 of Can I Get an Amen? The Interview with the Pastor series. Please like, share, and subscribe as we get ready to start the show. Here's your host, the pastor of Vida Church in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, Bishop Herson Gonzalez. Hello, my dear friends. We are back after a wonderful holiday season. I hope you're ready for season two of Can I Get an Amen? There's some changes this season. In addition to a brand new intro, thank you, Jazz. We uh, have changed the format of the show. All of my preaching sermons are going to be on a podcast called Viva Live. If you want to hear my sermons, and I hope you do, find us at Viva Live, the podcast. I'm also very excited about a brand new podcast I've started with my wife, Pastor Valerie. It's called The Story of Us, Person and Valerie, Unlocking the Power of Every Couple's Usness. So this podcast is going to be dedicated now to bringing you um, some of the premier pastors, preachers uh, that I know. Uh, not just in the region, but around the country. And I just know it's going to be a blessing to you. God is doing such amazing things all around us. And God is using some pretty fantastic people. Nobody gets there alone. And it's always so uh, kind of refreshing to hear the story of who God used and how God used them to, to get these pastors and preachers where they are now. My very first guest for season two is one of my best friends in the world. His name is Pastor Eli Serrano. He and his wife, Candy, Pastor RWC in Western Mass. Close to 1,500 people coming out for the weekend services. I can't wait to let you hear about how God did what he did there, and maybe God can enlighten you and give you some thoughts about what you're doing if you're leading or pastoring. This is a long interview, so I cut it into two pieces. This is the first part coming to you now. My interview with my dear friend, Ila Serrano, right now. As promised, I am here with my dear friend and colleague. I got to tell you, uh, this guy here is not only one of my favorite people in the world, but he is a prodigy. He's the chosen one. He is one of New England Patriots' greatest fans, the right reverend, el super estimado pastor, (laughs) Eli Serrano. Eli, how are you, my friend? (laughs) I'm doing good, man. It sounds like I'm being introduced to a wrestling event or something. <laughs> In yeah. this corner! Yeah. yeah, I'm doing good. Excited to be here. Excited to be with you and 
Well, uh, you're my first guest for season two of Can I Get an Amen? And this season is all about um, speaking to pastors and interviewing pastors. And uh, I really wanted to start with you because of our, number one, our, our closeness, our friendship. I hope people be able to hear uh, that we're not just ministry friends. <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we're the real deal. We, we, we spend time together. We love each other. Yeah, uh, so into each other. Yeah, tell people how much you love me. Go ahead. Let's start there. You know, it's uh, it's <laughs> it's yeah, it's. You know, I, I think it was. Uh, we have a mutual friend. Um, I, I was thinking about it this morning. I think it was November of two thousand and twelve. How do you know the date? How do you know the date? I just, I don't know. I just remember specific dates. Uh, it was November of two thousand and twelve. I had um, I had an uh, an event for men, and we had met earlier that year in a studio and, and you came out to that event and, uh, we just, we connected. And then I think what was the glue was when our wives connected and how much yes. they loved each other. That was yes. kind of the, uh, the icing on the cake. I think it's, um, that's, that was a special part for me. And I think as they say, the rest is history. Likewise, you know, we, we have yeah. a lot of fun every time we're together, but, but it's, it's been special to be able to, to grow from, um, not just have fun, us, but our wives, you know, love each other and care for each other. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I hope this is being edited. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Well, yeah, by me. <laughs> uh, one of the things about being in, in pastoral relationships, and anybody who's a pastor will be able to relate to this, we can have our friends, but the ones we get to spend the most time with are the ones that our wives like. If our wives like each other, we can go on vacations together. And we yeah. are in the middle. Yeah. I'm grateful to our, for our friendship. Uh, have Likewise. A lot of and, and I learn a lot from you, even though you're 27 years younger than I am. <laughs> yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds amazing. <laughs> but you look 10 years older than me, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Eli, tell me, for people that may not know you in our region and around the world, where were you born? Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Well, I was uh, I was uh, physically born in uh, in the city of Springfield. Pero um, espiritualmente, suita. <laughs> no, no, no. I say physically because my mom was um, very particular about what hospital she wanted her kids to be born. So we were oh. born in the in the biggest hospital of the region, which happened to be in Springfield. But we uh, we lived and were brought up in the city of Holyoke, which is ah, uh, an adjacent city. So uh, that was kind of the upbringing. I am the youngest of six siblings and yeah man i grew up in holyoke uh grew up in the church grew up in a home where uh, music was part of the culture and the dynamics of the home i often say that my dad wasn't really um too particular about getting us the newest toys uh, as much as he was about getting us uh, musical instruments so lap that's right that's right so we all <laughs> We all took a crack. First, we all started trying to play the guitar because dad was a, uh, a guitar player. And, right. um, and I just didn't have the patience. I didn't have the patience. I don't have, I don't have patience for mundane, routine type of uh, hands-on type of stuff. This guy's trying to say that playing guitar is mundane and routine. Well, that's the way that I, again, that's why, that's why for me it was. That's why I... <laughs> You know, I, I did not pick it up. Instead, what I did pick up was the percussion. I picked up uh, bongoses, congas, yeah. timbales, and I and had they, a, they actually, I, I joke around with you, but they tell me you were pretty good. 
I wasn't good at the beginning, and then I yeah. realized that if I if I was going to last in the in the worship team, I had to <laughs> I had to stop making noise, and I had to play as a team. So my brother, who led uh, the worship team at our local church, was very strict. He was kind of like uh, Joe Jackson, making sure that if we were playing, we were playing in sync, yeah. and if we were singing, that we were singing in harmony and not not just in unison. So um, that was kind of the the culture of the home. I've I've um, three older brothers and I have uh, two older sisters and then we have an adopted uh, sister. So yeah, that was, that was uh, growing up a Serrano. And it was, uh, it's beautiful now uh, that I see the way you guys all interact. Uh, you guys have a great love and admiration for one another and to see you uh, interact with your brothers and sisters might be something that we talk about another time, but uh, being the youngest, many of them attend your church and that's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, all of them attend the church, with the exception of one of my older brothers who lives in Houston. Yeah, so um, but, that would be a tough them, commute. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but everybody attends. You know, they all attend the church. They're all uh, very much active within the ministry. Uh, very. Let productive. me just let me just pause here and talk to Orlando, Stephen, Marilyn, all of my siblings who live close enough to my church, but do not go to my church. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a, that's another podcast. Family okay. feuds. Family yeah. feuds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how soon did you know when you were a kid? Did you think you would be a pastor? Did you know you were you were going to pastor from a young age? Or well, as the story goes, my mom always reminded me of this story. Um, uh, my dad didn't want to have any more kids. I mean, if you could imagine, he already had three sons and he already had two daughters. So he was, you know, he was done. And and mom, she told me she started praying. And she says, you know, God, just like, just like Hannah prayed, um, I'm asking that you, that you grant me my wish of having a son. And if you give me a son, then I want him, I want him to be, uh, just like Samuel dedicated to the work uh, of your house. Mm. Um, and I, and I promise that I'll, that I'll, uh, I'll give him back to you. So that, kind of started more of a more of my mom's prayer became uh, and her promise to God became the life that I lived and that kind of unfolded before my eyes so my mom would often remind me you are you are my Samuel and wow. don't forget that and um, as I look back now at my life I remember in, in the couple of churches that we've been a part of not too many I was always next to or surrounded by the, the pastors. There was something, an affinity, a, a reverence, a respect. Of course, growing up in the 80s, the position of a pastor was, I mean, it's sad to say, but it was so highly regarded in comparison Absolutely. to what it is now. If a pastor walked into a grocery store, a supermarket, wherever it was, I mean, there was just such a reverence and such a, a respect in society. So for me, man, I just had this admiration for men of God and you know, if I was playing my instrument, I wanted to be as close to the pastor as possible. And truly to answer the question, um, I really didn't see my ideal scenario as I became an adult and now was in uh, my background, which is in business. Uh, the ideal scenario for me was, man, I'm going to, you know, I love God. I'm going to, I'm going to preach the gospel uh, at, at the local church level. If I um, if I'm invited to go in, and sing and preach uh, or give a conference here or there, I'll, I'll do that. But ideally for me, Herson, I, I just wanted to be at the local church helping my pastor. Yep. Um, you enjoy I, being a son. I, I that's For me, that's the greatest uh, compliment and position in, in, in the kingdom is the ability to be 
to be uh, under someone that, that loves you and that you'd love. And that's, that's all I wanted. My, I saw myself as, and people would ask me, you know, where do you see yourself five, 10 years from now? And I would tell them, man, I'm going to, I just want to be able to, you know, continue to do what I'm doing in business and provide. You were successful in business. You were, you were, you're making decent money. You were pretty, yeah. you're doing well. Yeah. And, and at the same time, leverage uh, the things for the kingdom of God with, with the financial you know, freedom that I had, if you will, and be able to, to bless the house and, and, uh, and help my pastor kind of bring to life, um, a lot of opportunities and unique opportunities that we had at, at, at our local church. So that's kind of, I had a, I had a passion for ministry, but not a passion for the type of ministry that I'm doing now. I was completely ignorant to the thought, the idea that one day I would be a pastor. I jokingly mentioned and referred to you as a prodigy, but you kind of are. Uh, you, 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 your business acumen fused with your uh, just raw intelligence, your ability to see things and be able to make things happen, create things out of nothing. It's really something that I've really enjoyed watching and gleaning from you. But when you became a pastor, when you were called to the pastor, were you surprised by it? Did it catch you off guard? Or is, I mean, it wasn't something, obviously, like you said, it wasn't something that you were sitting pining for saying, oh, I can't wait to be the number one. I can't mm. wait to do this myself. I remember years ago, um, it was sometime in 2003, I remember being in front of my house um, in our first home and there's a lot of leaves out and I was raking leaves. I just felt, you know, I would, I would pay to see that. <laughs> I was, <laughs> man, I set myself up. Um, the spirit of God, the spirit of God just kind of spoke to me as I was, as I was working outside of the house. And I just felt the Lord speak to me and say, in six years, your life is about to change. Wow. You know, of course, God declares the end from the beginning as the word of God says. So you think about stuff that's not, I mean, even you, you try to forecast what the word of God means. And, you know, sometimes you could be accurate, but then other times, you know, you're just not. I was young. I was only 23 at this time. God is speaking to me about this is going to, not 20, I was 21. God is speaking to me about, hey, this is going to happen. And I'm saying to myself, okay, um, amen. God is going to do great things here and God is going to do this. And, right. and, and, and I'm, just excited to go back to the local church. So to answer your question, it was Mother's Day of 2008. And I went out to preach um, at a local church. The pastor had asked me to come in and, and speak. And I, as I was, uh, when I was done speaking, uh, there was a, a woman who, who called my wife and I to, to the front and to pray for us. And she gave us a word that day. And part of what she said was about a ministry, a ministry that was being birthed. So to answer your question, the best way that I could describe it is I was blindsided. I was mm. blindsided by, by the fact that I was not accurate as it related to discerning what is it that God had spoken six years prior. And indeed, what God you know, wanted to do um, in my life was to, to call me into this that I knew would just change my life forever. Um, yeah. And there was just no turning back. Um, so that was, that was the moment. It was mother's day of 2008 that changed everything. And then from that moment on, from, from mother's day of 2008 till the end of, till, till, till basically till the summer when it was confirmed, 
it was just word after word, dream after dream, situation and circumstance after circumstance that just kind of there was there was no running from it at that point. There was, was, there was no running from it. You're, I was being persecuted. I felt like I was in a <laughs> shoebox running from yeah. God. You can't. But in the meantime, God is surrounding you by people. And one of the one of my favorite things, and I love a lot of things about your ministry. But when you talk about your founders, your eyes light up. I mean, there's yeah. a joy. There's a joy in you, and you love to recognize the founders. Tell me about the couples, those founders, and how meaningful, how how great a role they played in establishing what would later become, eventually become Restoration yeah. Worship Center. Yeah. For me, it it yeah, it lights up, man. I'm 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 fortunate. I, I I pinch myself because I'm doing ministry with friends. You know, I'm I'm doing ministry with with friends that I get to do life with and ministry with. And I'll explain myself. I, I grew up, I grew up, and my dad, for whatever reason, my dad really did not have a lot of friends. My dad was he could be very charismatic, very outgoing, very friendly. But he was very much kind of introverted. Now that I look back at my life and look back at my dad's life through the lens of ministry, man, I just feel in my heart that dad needed a pastor. Dad mm-hmm. needed a shepherd to be able to, to push him and to help him. And I say all that because growing up, I, I didn't see that my dad valued friendships. As I came of age, I wanted to be completely the opposite of that. And I wanted to kind of value, uh, invest time, energy, and resource in friends. And the reality is you said something earlier that I, I can't take credit for when you said, you know, Eli, the, the word prodigy. Truth is, man, none of us are self-made. We all have men and women that have invested a lot of time, energy from the old viejitas growing up in the church who would invite yeah. me over for dinner. Yeah. And um, older ladies who would invite me over for dinner just to to feed me and to encourage me. Those to me, that was like those were lessons that I'll never forget to the friends that I have now, like yourself and, and other friends that I have around the world that invest time in me. So when it comes to my my um, my founding, uh, my found my founding team, uh, my core team, these were all friends. These were friends that I had met, most of them through church if not all of them actually through through the circle of hey we're we're serving god we're uh, we're contemporaries so it was all kind of um i look look back at it now god was putting the pieces in place for what today would be the ministry and these men and women are really they they were when i say they were friends first you know we they would go over the house uh, when they were struggling with with anything, whether it be frustrations in their marriage, in their in life, in parenting, or even spiritual frustration, feeling maybe maybe like they didn't completely understand everything that was happening around them, or or leadership wise. Um, we would get together, Candy and I would host them, and hey, we get a coffee pot going. And before you know it, it was 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. And we're just, we're talking and we're loving on each other, but we're friends. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not all in the same church. Most of us were not even in the same church. We were just connected via the region. We knew of each other. We loved each other. We, We would just hang out with each other. And then everything changed. Everything changed in 2008. Would you say that you were uh, low-key pastoring them at that time, giving them advice and counseling them? Would you say that that was already forming or or was it sort of just mutual friendship at that point? 
You know, I, I didn't see it that way, but I had a friend of mine's, I had another pastor tell me that he said, uh, Eli, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but, but you had been pastoring them all yeah. along. Yeah. Um, and so sure enough, I mean, there was a, a level of, of respect. They kind of saw me as the old soul. They quite, they kind of saw me as, man, this kid is, uh, he's our age, but yeah. he's, he's doing different things. And so, you know, and I was mutually intrigued with them because of the, the high value that I put on friendship. Um, so it was, it was really, uh, I feel fortunate. I, I read a, a statistic um, about six months ago that said that within two years of a church plant, 60 to 60 to 70%, I believe was the number of the core team has, has left the church. Yeah. And for us, um, our, our, our launch team was, um, was 22 people out of which all of them are, are, are with us with the exception of one person who relocated to California. Um, so they're all still a part of the church. That's um, amazing. And, and that's, that. it just doesn't happen. So we're, we're fortunate. We're blessed. These are, these are uh, high character people. These are obviously, you know, they're loyal, high yep. integrity, mm-hmm. um, and high capacity, high capacity for I sure. Mean, that's what's beautiful about it. I mean, yeah, they're all friends, but they can all do great stuff. <laughs> Every one of them is talented and gifted in their own way. And I see how each one plays a role. They all kind of fell into a slot that God had for them and that you helped them I think create one of the things that I tell people <laughs> is is that it doesn't happen overnight. Right. I think that uh, all of us see David's mighty warriors of Scripture, mm-hmm. and, and we mm-hmm. tend to forget that um, they were uh, they were desperate. They were in debt in a cave and uh, crooks. Exactly, and Dave, David had to uh, invest time, energy, and resources into them. For me, I, I look back and God allowed me to see that man. These men and women were people who were hurt. Hmm. You know, I think about when Jesus looks at the crowd and he sees, hey, they're like sheep without a shepherd, um, yeah. harassed and helpless. When I looked at my core team, that's the way that I, that I saw them. They were, they were sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed. They were um, maybe misunderstood. And I think that that's kind of um, has, has been for a long time, kind of our, our generation. I grew up in a time where, where when people spoke to us, about us, they said things like, "Well, young people don't love the Lord," and and uh, you know, there's there's an aura of rebellion and and so on and so on. And I just thought differently. I thought that uh, we did love God. We maybe we just wanted someone to teach us. We wanted somebody to explain the Word of God to us. We we wanted someone to to love on us to. Mm-hmm. To be able to to speak to us not through the lens of our shortcomings, but through the lens of our potential. So, speaking to us, yeah. Um, yeah. So those are some of the things that that I saw in them, and I was, you know, by God's grace, uh, between Candy and I, we were able to to speak into them and challenge them and correct them, uh, celebrate them, and and see them grow. Your church experienced pretty supernatural growth over over the years. Uh, but I would argue that it was healthy, though it was though it was it was vast. It was fast, and, and I'm sure that there were some years where you felt like you were just trying to do everything you can to just keep up with the growth. But it felt organic. It watching it the way I've seen it, it felt organic. It felt like God was doing something really special. And I know that there's there's no secret 
ingredient. There's no secret sauce specifically for church growth, but there are processes and there's strategies that work for some people. And you've been one of those pastors that has been willing to open your church and say to local pastors and even all the way out here where I am, come, let's talk about what worked for us. Take whatever worked and, and use it. What, what would you give credit for? What would you say when you think back, how did it work so well? Other than just the glory of God and the, and the call of God, why did it work for you in your city and so many others in your city and town? It's not, it's not worked that way for them. Well, the first thing that comes to mind, I didn't, I know I'm not, I, I kind of, I don't, I don't have anything in preparation for, for yeah. these questions, but, mm-hmm. but the, the thing that does come to mind is something that I've said to my, to, to the church since 2009, our founding year. And that was, Jesus said that the harvest is ready. Um, all we need to do is we need to, we need to pray that God would send laborers to the field. So what I've always told the church and, and taught the church is that, number one, we, we have to pray first. We have to pray that God would send uh, laborers to the field. Uh, the, the greatest form of evangelism is an atmosphere that has been really detailed by Jesus. If we just build it, like, like right, the field of dreams, if you build it, they'll come. Mm-hmm. You have to understand when, when we planted when we planted RWC, I didn't know about ARC. I didn't know, yeah. well, for those of you that don't know, ARC is Association of Related Churches. It's a it's a church planting network, which is an amazing church planting network that now uh, our church sows into and, and, and helps um, um, you know, launch churches around the world. We didn't know about ARC. We didn't we didn't we didn't follow a a blueprint say of to-dos. As a matter of fact, we made we made plenty of mistakes now when I look back at it. However, there was this childlike faith to mm. believe scripture, to believe scripture for what it said. And Jesus said, if you just pray that, it, that, that God would send laborers to the field, then that's it. So what we focused is that understanding that laborers are sent to the field, but must still be trained. They themselves. They themselves must still be trained. There, there's an atmosphere, there's a culture, there's a vision, there's a mission. So for us, we focused, even in 2009, our first year, we focused a lot on training. We put a high demand on training, on infrastructure, on teaching people. This is, this is who we are. This is what we do. Um, we're not going to be the, the jack of all trades and master of none. We haven't been called to do a hundred things. Let's just do these two, three things. Let's do them right. Let's do discipleship right. Let's do creating an atmosphere that guests will feel loved, encouraged. Let's do that right. Let's create an atmosphere for children where they feel empowered. Let's do that right. So for us, it was creating an atmosphere where where we would train up leaders and position them. And this is a lot of intentionality. This is a lot of planning. This is a lot of writing, a lot of, you know, okay, let's let's cross that idea. That's not for now. Let's implement this. There's a lot of tweaking. There's a constant change. That was part one of my conversation with Pastor Eli Serrano from Springfield, Massachusetts. I really hope you stay tuned for the next half of that conversation where I ask him about vision and vision implementation. I ask him 
why so few pastors are able to effectively implement the vision that they have. And boy, he's got some good insight. So I hope you tune in next week for the second half of my conversation with Pastor Eli. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Can I Get an Amen? God bless you. Thanks for listening to Can I Get an Amen? with Bishop Herson Gonzalez. Follow him on Facebook at Bishop Herson Gonzalez. Until next time.